Welcome to Big Tent Radio on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. And uh, I'm your host today, Luke Fowler, here with my colleagues from the School of Public Service at Boise State, Jackie Kettler and Charlie Hunt. We have exciting things to talk about, current affairs, politics, mostly not depressing or at least somewhat entertaining stories. I don't know, they're kind of depressing, some of them, but we'll see. We'll let the audience be the judge on this one. That's right. Um, but to, you know, start us off, we're going to talk about you know uh, the big story, the big historic story, um, impeachment, the impeachment trials in the Senate, and we have our chief impeachment correspondent <laughs> to my right, Charlie. Charlie I'm very Hunt. glad that is not me. <laughs> yes, don't worry, Jackie. I've got I've got some more uh, titles for you to add to your resume <laughs> later oh, on boy. the show. But let's start with our chief impeachment correspondent over here, Charlie. What's going on in the Senate right now? A lot's going on in the Senate, Luke. Uh, so the uh, you know the House impeached the president uh, quite a few weeks ago. At this point, the articles were finally transferred to the Senate, and the trial officially began uh, this week. Um, so a, a few interesting things happen here that make it a little different from your average trial. One is that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, is presiding over the entire uh, ordeal and has made a couple of statements. Uh, uh, particularly at the end of the first day of of the of the trial, uh, basically imploring both the House impeachment managers who are in charge of prosecuting the case against the president, as well as uh, the president's own lawyers, uh, Jay Sekulow and, and a couple of his other uh, uh, legal team, basically imploring them to tone it down and not be so mean to each other. Um, <laughs> as you can pos- as you can imagine, it is uh, it's a pretty heated debate so far. Um, you know, not a not a lot of actually statements made on behalf of the senators themselves. Uh, they're supposed to be jurors, right, in this particular situation, and there are some interesting rules sort of governing what they can and can't do. Um, just in case um, listeners don't know, who are the House managers? Who are these right. people? Right. So the impeachment managers, uh, they're, they're essentially supposed to prosecute the case against the president, and these managers were essentially chosen by Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker, um, and these are members of the House who are you know, in charge of gathering all the evidence that the the House committees gathered during the impeachment phase. Um, so this isn't really, we're sort of past impeachment. Impeachment has happened. Now we're in the trial. And so the members of the House that Pelosi chose gathered all this evidence. They've split up their duties. There are eight of them, I believe, eight impeachment managers. And they're led by uh, Adam Schiff, Representative Adam Schiff of California, who has become a bit of a household name, uh, been uh, at least in my household, uh, you know, <laughs> making making this case uh, uh, against the president and sort of leading this this team. They're essentially the prosecution, and then the president's own lawyers uh, are the defense, and they are often issuing rebuttals to something that. Uh, Chairman Schiff or some of the other impeachment managers have argued. But uh, just to clarify, this this trial is not governed by the same uh, rules as a normal trial in court, right? I mean, this is I don't want to say it's a political trial for the most part, but it, this is about. But it is. I, I mean, know. that's that's what yeah. I mean. Maybe that's not. But I mean, it's it's a trial, but it's not in the same way. The the rules of evidence aren't to the, held the same way. The the statement of fact is not held the same way. The the process. And that's right. There's there's no you know Exhibit A, Your Honor, Exhibit B, Your Honor, stuff like that. Uh, it is there are. Are resemblances to an actual trial in that you have a pros- essentially a prosecution and a defense. You have a jury, a jury of sorts. Uh, the, Who the, will be voting to convict or not, right? That's, that's right. What the I vote think, is. Th- that's what we're leading up to. Um, so, so whenever the trial does end, there will be you know a vote to convict or acquit, and so that's the same. But it's not the same in that you know 
yes, it's a jury of uh, the president's peers, but all of these peers happen to be in the United States Senate. And so they all have these sort of, you know, we think of jurors as they're supposed to be impartial, right? Uh, that's, you can get not selected for a jury if the judge thinks you're not going to be partial. And all of these senators at the beginning signed this essentially oath to be impartial in this trial. Um, and this is like a legal document. Of course, any sort of observer of what's going on uh, does not necessarily expect the, you know, the Republicans to be impartial in their support of the president or the Democrats to be impartial in how much they want him gone. But we've actually had several senators that have come out and just blatantly said that they're not impartial. People like Lindsey Graham, correct? Yeah. And people like Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority <laughs> Leader, who said on said in an interview a couple days before the trial started, I'm not going to be impartial. I'm like essentially saying that he's coordinating with the White House in terms of the 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 strategy for how to answer some of these arguments made by the House impeachment managers. And you know, this stuff is it, you know, in terms of the legal questions, you know, McConnell there are no legal ramifications for going on Fox News and saying these things, but it does sort of call into question kind of the the legitimacy of of this process in the Senate, uh, give, given what's going on and given the kind of responses and sort of prejudging that we're seeing uh, from from the Democrats and to a to an even greater extent uh, to the Republicans. And so, oh, sorry, Luke, I was just going to say, so the senators are just at this point, they're listening, right? They're not allowed to have their cell phones. That's right. They're sitting, listening to what's going on, maybe catching some, you know, snoozing a little bit here mm -hmm. and there. Anybody in particular that we know of that have fallen asleep? Well, our, our senator here in Idaho, Jim Risch, was perhaps the first to be caught um, snoozing. Probably not the last, though. Oh, definitely not. There have been reports of other people having some problems staying awake. Look, it's a long day. I mean, I don't know. I find this all super exciting. If I were there, I would be wrapped with attention. But, and they're going think. late into the night, That's right? That's true. That's true. And you've had, and we've had sort of senators sort of come out of the trial at the end of a day and and sort of complain about this whole the, the process that it's that it's going so long and that it's going out you know into the night. But um, you know, there there are strict rules sort of governing this. You know, the importantly, these senators. They don't have their phones, and so they don't have staff on the floor with them. They can't check in with sort of real-time reactions of what's going on, which is, I'm sure, excruciating to them since they're all, you know, uh, egomaniacs. But Including some presidential candidates. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, this is another dynamic. We're going to talk about the Iowa caucus uh, in a later segment, but... Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders and Amy, Amy Klobuchar, who are all still very much in contention, as well as we should say, you know, Michael Bennett, uh, another senator who is technically still running, I believe. Uh, <laughs> this may be news to our listeners. Sorry. Sorry, Senator <laughs> might be Bennett. news to uh, Senator Bennett as well. Uh, yes, it might be. Um, uh, you know, they're they have to be here and they cannot be in Iowa. And so people like, you know, Vice President Biden and Pete Buttigieg sort of have the state to themselves, which I'm sure they love. But, uh, you know, such is life. That's the responsibility of a senator. Well, and I, I think it's kind of important to kind of talk about the, the fact there's some very strict rules uh, surrounding this, but this is not a normal trial because one of the big criticisms that have come out against Justice Roberts so far is that I think people have called him more of a, a mascot for the impeachment trials than anything else or uh, like a figurehead. The fact that he hasn't been very good at reigning in either side other than the, the admonishment on the first right. day. Um, and so I've definitely seen criticisms come out from a lot of news sources about uh, blatant like false statements that are being made by, the, by mm -hmm. Trump's lawyers here. 
here yeah. um, that the chief justice has done nothing to stop. But because this isn't a normal trial, he's not really obligated, nor is it really his place to do it. Am I correct in that? That's that's exactly right. So, you know, there are all all it says in the Constitution is that the chief justice presides over, you know, presides over these proceedings. It does not say, you know, oh, what's what's in order or out of order like you would normally expect in a Senate trial. You don't have, you know, objection, your honor. You know, you don't have any of these kinds of things. Uh, but certainly you're right that I think Democrats had probably hoped, perhaps uh, in their dreams, that, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, as you know, there's no doubt that he's a conservative, but has uh, that that he would sort of step in and be add at lend an air of legitimacy to the to the trial to the proceedings and hopefully you know call out uh the president's lawyers on some of their you know pretty blatant falsehoods about say the involvement of ukraine in the in the 2016 election hacking and things like that and so um you know hoping that he would help protect against the sort of muddying of the waters in terms of the evidence that's presented uh but but i think they've been disappointed so far and i think roberts is probably you know pretty wary of stepping in too deeply into this, given his role uh, in the judiciary. So what can we uh, look forward to, to continue, right? So we have a couple more days of trial. Like, when does this all end? Are we just waiting for both sides to rest their cases? Or what are we exactly waiting for to wrap this up? So the one of the votes early this week was on the actual uh, rules and procedures for the trial itself. Um, and they set a certain amount of time and a certain number of hours uh, that each side could spend uh, presenting their case. And so the House impeachment managers are still presenting their their case. They are probably doing so as we speak. Um, and they have a, a certain number of hours left to do that. And then, you know, the 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 other side can kind of present their case. Uh, you know, it's it's tough to say. It depends how they end up sort of doling out these legislative days and these hours. So it will probably wrap up next week, but it's hard to say for sure. Um, and like we said, it will culminate in these senators taking a vote to uh, to convict or acquit. Um, and, and we'll just... You know, I think we have an inkling of how that'll turn out, but we'll just have to see what uh, what the evidence is. And it requires 60 votes, correct, to convict? That's right. So they would. So Democrats would need to peel off quite a few Republican senators in order to accomplish this. All right. Great updates. Interesting stories. Definitely something for us all to uh, keep our eye on in the next couple of weeks. But we are going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back to talk about new, uh, more current events. You are listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, community through radio. You're listening to Big Tent Radio here on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. I'm your co-host, Charlie Hunt, here with Luke Fowler and Jackie Kettler. Uh, we've talked about impeachment, uh, and you know one thing we've been talking about uh, is how impeachment and this whole process has clouded out a lot of other really, really important stories, uh, especially you know here in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, and one important story uh, that's been cropping up in the last few days, a, a very unfortunate story, is about this uh, the coronavirus that's that's popped up in in China and caused some serious health concerns. Uh, and, and so now I'm going to turn the tables and we're going to turn to our chief uh, Chinese health news correspondent, uh, Luke Fowler, to uh, you know g give us the lowdown on on what's been going on. Well, I, I just want to point out that our other co-host Jen Schneider isn't here, and that's normally her area of expertise. Oh, okay, but uh, she is so graciously loud. <laughs> me to cover the story in her absence. Uh, so for anybody that's been uh, paying attention really to, to any of the national news sources, um, this idea of the coronavirus um, coming out of uh, Wuhan, I'm sure I'm uh, mispronouncing that in some way or other. 
for our long-term listeners, you know that I mispronounce everything, um, is coming out, out of uh, China. Um, and so we've detected the, the, or the first uh, cases um, have been t- detected in uh, Washington State and a second case in uh, Texas um, in the U.S., making this what is essentially a global health emergency, though the World Health Organization hasn't officially labeled it that yet. Um, they are reserving judgment, um, kind of deciding what, what's going on here. Uh, again, one, one of the things that I, I think is interesting is this is uh, an epidemic, or at least uh, has the potential in these stages to be at the same level as things like SARS, if you remember that, or our listeners remember that from about a decade ago. Um, yet, we're not really talking about it as much because uh, impeachment is really uh, crowded out a lot of the, these stories. Um, and so just uh, a couple of updates before we get into some of the, the commentary on this is one, uh, they have uh, banned travel to and from uh, Wuhan as well uh, as, well as uh, several. So the Chinese response here is to basically shut down travel to and from this area as well as uh, several other cities where the virus has been detected, which is kind of um, an interesting reaction is essentially to shut down people moving in and out of any area to, to stop the, the infection. Or the spread of the infection uh, in the U.S., um, passengers are being directed to what is essentially one of five airports or five airports in the country where they're doing health screenings for passengers coming through. Um, and so those are the the U.S. protocols to try to deal with this. Um, but anytime, I mean, we're talking about a globalized world where where air travel comes in comes and goes in a lot of ways. So trying to contain a, a virus like this is is a huge logistical and administrative problem um, that that has gone through. And, and as much as we kind of test this and, and try different things, like it's almost impossible to do this without removing freedom and shutting down borders for the most part. So, so you mentioned that the, the U.S. has already taken actions on travel. How else can the government help respond or minimize risk with an with with a health concern like this? Uh, you know, that's a, a, always, a, you know, kind of one of those big questions. Uh, one of the problems, I, I believe, is particularly with viruses like this that start to pop up, um, is we don't really wholly know what is the uh, kind of what is causing the, the spread. Um, so one of the things that apparently makes this a very unique uh, virus is that it can actually be spread between uh, animals and people. Oh. Um, that makes it kind of unique in certain ways. Um, and so there's not like a whole lot of information because this has just started happening about what is actually the the, the cause of it, um, how it's being spread between people, what's going on. Um, and so certainly we don't know, you know, exactly, you know, where this virus is or where potential carriers are. Um, and so I, I think the, the initial, you know, stages of, of doing health screenings with passengers coming in from the places that we know this virus is located is, you know, step one. Um, the other things is, again, to, to try to caution people from being around crowded rooms and all this. But, I mean, basically all the the staple public health things that you would do around the flu. Um, I read some commentary today, though, as the coronavirus might be worse, the the uh, common flu or the common cold is actually more uh, more of a danger for most people because they're more likely to get infected with it, particularly if you're a vulnerable population, um, people that are, are very old or very young or have weakened immune systems, they're more likely to get the common flu uh, and and be, you know, at, at risk for it than they are to catch something like this as, a, you know, a very unique disease um, that's being spread in very, you know, isolated areas. And it's causing a lot of uh, sort of travel distress and logistical issues. I especially know with the with the, the Chinese New Year coming up on Saturday, I know there's been a lot of sort of travel to and from the area. And I have to imagine that even aside from sort of the health concerns, there's probably a lot of downstream impacts, right, of sort of that kind of, you know, mm-hmm. delaying travel, especially into major areas like Beijing um, in, in coming days, probably economic impacts too, right? Oh, absolutely. Economic uh, impacts from from the reduction in travel and all this type of stuff. Uh, but I mean, again, a, a lot of this stems from fear. And even though um, and we got the, kind of the, the probability of 
of you actually being exposed to this, this virus is very, very small for the most part. Um, I mean, the fear factor here, right? I mean, is it going to stop people from the U.S. from traveling to China or from traveling abroad? Is it going to stop them from traveling, you know, really even internally to the U.S.? Like, what is going to be driving some of this behavior? And again, for those that remember SARS, um, that was, again, an isolated incident in a lot of ways. There was very U- very little U.S. Expo- uh, exposure. But, I mean, it, it really scared people away from being in enclosed places, being in airports for a while. Well, and I remember even just a few years ago, the the level of fear sort of compared to the actual impact it ended up having on the U.S. in terms of uh, Ebola when that was, uh, I, I think that was 2014, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was, uh, it was, it led the news for such a long time and luckily ended up having not as, obviously had much bigger impacts in places like Liberia and other African countries, but uh, less so in the U.S. But uh, I'm, I'm sort of interested in how this sort of plays into how we cover it in the news. You know, it's a it's a kind of topic that you would expect to see sort of splashed across CNN. And it's very it's a it's a very kind of I, I, I don't know. It's one of those kinds of topics that probably kind of not to minimize the conflict, but that it gets kind of blown out of proportion. Well, right? we have so much of our, our, you know, like the entertainment we consume involves right. epidemics or viruses that, you know, like disaster becomes these huge disasters. So I think it probably plays particularly on people's fears when you start to see something reported like this, like, <laughs> oh, it can be, you know, a share between animals and humans. Like, oh, my God, you know, like I can see how it's easy to get frightened about these these types of issues and again when we go back to the media like there's a fine line to walk between like trying to make sure uh, sure people are are, are are informed and are being cautious and all this and being fear mongers yeah right um and so you know it, that's a that's a very like thin line to walk and honestly i think probably most of our national mainstream media probably goes towards fear mongering to, to boost their ratings but i think there's kind of a balance there yeah. Well, you want people to be prepared, taking the proper precautions at the same time. Yeah, we don't really want to just freak out everyone. Especially something like this where there is a danger that it could get worse. Not just that people will be affected by what it is right now, but that if people don't take the proper precautions, it could actually sort of blow it into this full-blown crisis. And and so we certainly uh, we certainly hope that is not the case. I guess it's your winter reminder to wash your hands, cover your mouth. That's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, if you're sick, stay home. Don't expose your colleagues or, or friends. Yes. Cough into the, the crook of your elbow and not your hands. Yeah. Always remember. All good public health tips. That's right. That's the kind of great content you can expect here on Big Tent Radio. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be uh, right back after this. Hey, that's a cute dog. Oh, hi, puppy. Oh, come here. Oh, oh, no. Oh, oh, no. Get down. No, down dog. Oh, bad, bad dog. Oh. Remember that one dog? Hey, help. A real mutt. Not much to look at. Whose dog is this? Oh, somebody. Even though he kept throwing rocks at it, it kept coming back. Yeah, we're a bit like that. But the vet bills can be a lot more expensive than becoming a monthly donor. Yep. KRBX, your home for hokey dog analogies. Good boy. All right, we're back on Big Tent Radio on Radio Boise. And uh, we're going to wrap up the show talking about, uh, you know, I'm not going to say a, a positive story, but at least one that's a little bit more fun and exciting than our, our last couple, the Iowa caucuses. That's right. Um, so uh, for the uh, uneducated um, like myself, can you explain to me what a caucus is? Charlie, I would I would love to. So uh, you know, and we have we have a couple different ways of doing uh, 
primaries in this in this country, ways of nominating uh, a candidate for our major parties for office, uh, in this case for president. Uh, we have primaries and caucuses. Primaries tend to operate a lot like a sort of a regular election. You you know, go to the polling place and have a secret ballot. Uh, with caucuses and specifically with the Iowa caucuses, uh, it can it can be a little raucous, a raucous caucus. Well, uh, it's public, right? That's right. It's it, it is public, and that's part of sort of what you know. There there are ways in which it can sort of feel more democratic. You know, everyone's kind of in a town hall and sort of discussing, and there's discussion back and forth. Uh, but it is a public ballot, and so there are all kinds of other uh, pressures. So. Um, so to reiterate, you know, the Iowa caucus is coming up. It's the first uh, it's the sort of the first caucus or primary on the Democratic side uh, of of this sort of primary season. It is not this coming Tuesday, but the next one, I believe. Um, and yeah, so I mean, part of the part of the rules that make this really interesting is that, you know, voters, uh, voters who are voting in this caucus go to one of the different precincts sort of polling locations. There are uh, 1,679 in Iowa. Um, and at all of these locations, voters group themselves by according to which candidate they support. And so they have a first round of uh, public voting. And after that first round, any candidate who does not get 15% of the vote or more at that particular polling location, their voters are forced to choose a different candidate and realign. And so it's it's similar to these kinds of th- things like ranked choice voting in a way where you have multiple rounds and you have to reach a certain threshold. And that adds a lot of interesting elements to, to how the caucus operates. Right. And except instead of like on a ranked choice voting ballot, you're doing it on your ballot here, like people are coming over trying to convince you to go support their side. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, in this particular case, you know, a, a lot of times in, in normal first past the post elections, which is what we tend to have in the U.S., your second choice doesn't matter. In this case, your second choice matters a lot, especially if your first choice is one of these candidates, you know, like like poor Senator Bennett, who we talked about earlier, uh, who probably will not get 15 percent in a lot of these locations. And even sort of more up ballot people, people like Amy Klobuchar, who are doing pretty well, hovering around eight or nine percent. But if she doesn't reach that threshold, then her voters will have to choose someone else to go to. And so after that first round, you see uh, sort of advocates for the other candidates. So you'll see, you know, people from uh, who are advocating for Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren or or Mayor Pete, uh, you know, going to supporters of these other candidates and really twisting their arm to try and get them to join them for this second round. Um, and then, then it's this second round, which sort of represent the final vote tally for that particular precinct. So this sounds like a, a really long, intensive uh, process. I mean, at, at least compared to our traditional f- primary voting, which we see in most states, right? Yeah, it usually takes several hours. And of course, the issue is you have to be present in order to participate. Yes. So if you are not off work um, on a Tuesday evening, you have to take care of someone. Like, it, it can't really be restrictive in who can actually participate. That's right. And so in, in places places that do cost especially places like Iowa, you have an electorate that tends to skew older, you know, towards retirees or people who who aren't working. Um, And so, you know, people who work full time jobs or who work at night, uh, you know, who can't afford to, you know, stay through all the way to the end. um, It's it sort of skews the electorate in that particular way. And so, you know, that's something that may sort of advantage or disadvantage uh, certain candidates for sure. And so, you know, another thing that happens here is, you know, with Iowa is 
is particularly important as a caucus because it's first. And so here, you know, what matters a lot are the expectations. So, you know, the current polling tends to favor Joe Biden, as it does in a lot of other states. Um, but, you know, he's not polling far, far ahead of people like Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, or Elizabeth Warren, who are all sort of polling around the same uh, in Iowa. And so if, for example, one of those other three candidates can come out and win Iowa um, and sort of confound those expectations, that matters a lot more than if, say, Joe Biden wins by the same amount. And so that's going to affect the race a lot going forward. So that's one way in which this caucus structure in Iowa makes it particularly interesting and influential for the rest of the process. I mean, it is interesting in terms of like seeing people out directly engaging in democracy. Yeah. Like it's much more, you know, you're participating in a much different way, actually engaging in the process. I mean, voting is, you know, like it's it's a little it's just a little different, right? It's a little bit more powerful passive perhaps and so this you're directly involved but again along with side that there's you know people who can't participate because of the time demands Charlie any predictions on what's going to happen in Iowa in two weeks oh I wouldn't uh, I, I you know I'm I'm out of the prediction business but <laughs> I, you know currently it looks like Biden does have the edge what you know we mentioned that second choices matter a lot here and you know one thing that's notable is that you know, someone like Elizabeth Warren, uh, who has faded a little bit, you know, she was in a really strong position a few months ago, she's faded a little bit, but is still very much in this race. She consistently uh, appears to be the based on polling appears to be the second choice of a lot of uh, voters and of a lot of voters for both Joe Biden, for Bernie Sanders, and for a lot of these lower tier candidates. So, you know, if if there's, a, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if uh, Warren ends up doing better than her polling currently indicates. Uh, you know, a lot. Another thing that matters a lot here in Iowa. I mean, it matters in every state, but especially in Iowa, when you have to keep your supporters there, you have to beg them not to leave. Is you know which candidate has a strong uh, ground game, a strong uh, campaign on the ground, volunteers who are going to stick with you to the end, make sure your voters stick around. Um, that's the kind of thing I would be uh, looking for. And Warren and particularly uh, Pete Buttigieg have been noted for their really strong uh, sort of get out the vote operations in their campaigns so far in I, Iowa. I do think it's interesting that a candidate like Warren may actually do a little bit better in Iowa, mm -hmm. potentially if she is a lot of people's second choice, whereas we won't see that translate into those traditional primary um, ballot states. That's right. And so that's, you know, that's part of why it's really interesting to have Iowa first is because, you know, maybe I, I think probably what someone like Warren is hoping for is to overperform in Iowa if, you know, come in a strong second, if not win outright, and then hope that that translates into first tier, you know, first choice support in places like New Hampshire or South Carolina or Nevada, which are these states. Uh, the, these states coming up because there's a lot of things like, you know, media attention that come with winning Iowa. This is, you know, uh, Barack Obama, when he first ran in 2008, he was behind him pretty much all of these polls. I mean, in, in certain states, he was he was ahead, but he was certainly not the front runner. Hillary Clinton was the front runner. He pulled off a surprise victory in Iowa. And while it continued to be a hard fought campaign, um, you know, that really put him in the driver's seat for a lot of the subsequent primaries. And so, um, uh, you know, whether you think it should be first or not, it is. And so, uh, you know, that's that's sort of what we'll be looking for, who can kind of beat their expectations uh, in the coming weeks. 
Yeah, and so certainly when it comes to these early uh, caucuses, like when we call, I mean, it's the polls and the, the fundraising, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, uh, particularly for, for some of the lower candidates, right, uh, uh, winning uh, or doing very well is a sense of legitimacy that your candidate campaign might not have had up until this point. Nothing that, that really puts the stamp on, like, you're serious. Yeah, and it's really interesting because a lot of these, especially these top four candidates, uh, particularly Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, though Mayor Pete has also raised a pretty ridiculous amount of money, um, all four are well-established and could stay on and spend a lot of money uh, even if they don't do as well in Iowa. So, I, you know, I'm not sure how that'll how Some that'll of those out. states have, they'll allocate, like, there's proportional, mm -hmm. like... Right. And That's so, right. For, in terms of the delegates. So the delegates. What's important yeah. to remember, and we will say this probably every show we talk about primaries because it's very important, it's the delegate count that matters and not the total amount of votes you get. Now, a lot of states, some states award winner take all, like the Electoral College does, and then other states award them according roughly to the percentage of the vote you get. And and that's that's Iowa works that way, um, and I believe New Hampshire works that way as well. And so what you know for example what bernie sanders did last time around was accumulate a ton of delegates it didn't end up being enough but it allowed him to stay in the race long enough to remain viable and so we'll see which candidates are able to do that this time all right all exciting stuff and this has been a, another great episode of big tent radio on radio boise um and just a uh, shout out to other shows on uh, radio boise um on january 30th they're going to or we're going to deba uh, debut our first national uh, podcast about the morley nelson national conservation area uh so keep your uh, ears open to listen to that when that comes out uh here in a couple of weeks um if you've got questions you can always uh, contact wayne or look us up on the website um, and everybody have a nice day.